This evening, we have got Gianni Russo on here, and good grief, when I was a kid, I watched the Godfather movie with my dad, and it just absolutely blew me away, and Gianni's acting was such that his role, you know, he made people, the people who loved that movie, absolutely hated the character, and it was a powerful performance, and a lot of times in Hollywood, you've got actors playing the lives of people who have had these, you know, hard-hitting crime stories. But Gianni's own life itself was equally as hard-hitting. And we're going to get to that. So thank you very much for coming on. Cheers from London. Oh, no, please, man. I, I enjoy London so much, man. I had so many friends there. Johnny at Tramps. And I used to go there all the time. I kept a flat on 17 Eaton Square for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, we love you for that, as long as you're not a friend of Prince Andrew. No, no. I was actually, I was actually a friend of Sultan of Brunei when he right. bought Chester. And then he insisted I move in over there. So he used to have high tea every afternoon. Wow. <laughs> I could have fallen into that, but I had to come back and make some money. <laughs> Where did you have the high tea at? At the Dorchester. Okay, yeah, nice. So, I've written the longest ever book about Pablo Escobar. It's over a thousand pages long. It's a four-book series, mostly translated from Spanish. I'm, and I've, I, I'm looking at him intimidating me behind you on your bookshelf. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get... I'd like to start with this because I've read your book, yeah. and there's a link in the description box below this video to your book. Do you just want to tell... Before we get to this Escobar story that I'm really fascinated by... Do you want to tell people a bit about your book and why they should get it? Well, why I wrote the book, I, I wrote it when I was 75, and uh, it came out March 10th last year. And fortunately, it's selling unbelievable in seven countries. And I wrote the book, and the last sentence in the book is, yes, you can. And I feel we're in great need. I'm proud to say I have two daughters, nine sons, and ten grandsons, but none of them are motivated they don't even speak to each other. Oh. So I'm seeing where the society is not intermingling. They're not having conversation. Everybody's on their tablet or doing something. And I'm saying to myself, what can I contribute to society one more time? So I wrote this book, and it was my life story. And I wanted you to go through the journey and the suffering and that we're not privileged. And don't sit back and just think, well, I'm supposed to have this. Like my children even said to me, Dad, you have 40 cars. Can I have that one? I said, no. I bought my car. <laughs> I, are you on? But, you know, it's, it's an interesting, fortunately, I'm, you know, I'll be 78 in December, and I have a zest for life that never stopped once I got out of Bellevue. This is my second pandemic I'm going through, which, you know, I, as you, when you read the book, August 7th, 1949, I was put in Bellevue Estate Hospital quarantine for five years. And fortunately, I was part of the Jonas Salt experiment for the salt vaccine. Now, we have eradicated basically polio throughout the world. So there's a lot of messages in this book, and you've read it. So you know there's so many different facets to the stone. Yeah, you've got so many stories from so many iconic characters as well that you knew. And you've also narrated the audiobook in your own voice. And a lot of people on YouTube, they like to get an audiobook. So the link to that is in the description box below this video. Now, I was riveted by your story about Pablo Escobar. 
Could you go back and set the table for how all that came about? Well, I, I had a, a nightclub at the time. Uh, I had a few, but the one we're talking about now, I opened in the 80s and closed it in 89 because of Pablo's guy. But uh, it was the place to be. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis did all my commercials before they did any commercials. Plus, they fraternized it every night. I came up with the idea by living in Vegas in 1959, I got there. I spent 30 years in Vegas, in and out, you know. But after the second show, which was normally at midnight, there was no place to eat. And I'm a late eater to begin with. So, and I realized why it was the culinary unions. They didn't want to have, you know, kitchens and all that. So I built this wonderful place that opened 12 hours a day at six at night to six in the morning, served gourmet food till six in the morning, Russian service, everything's finished at table side. And it was very elegant, very expensive, but it, it, it took off. And it was the place to be. And this one night in particular, October 28, 1989, you know, after uh, my run for nine years, this gentleman came in and I called my front door because I used to sit up in the bar in the corner and we had hardline phones. And I would just pick up, I'd say, who's this guy you put on seven? because we raided everybody. So he was a Caesar's Palace casino customer, and he was rated five. And the guy I was talking to, who now is a, a star in his own right, was Steve Sharippa. Steve Sharippa was going to UNLV, and I had him as a doorman before his soprano fame and before even Blue Blood fame. And so I said, Steve, who is he? He's, I don't know who he is, but uh, he's got a five-star rating. I said, go load him up. So he bought a bottle of Cristal over, a bottle of Louis XIII, because he's just paying. When they came in, and so he must have been a big player, and he was giving everybody $100 bills, which I've seen so many nights. Well, he wasn't there five or 10 minutes. And there's a whole ruckus with the girl he's with. He breaks the Cristal bottle and sticks it in her face. So now I called Steve. I said, Steve, get over there. He said, I ain't going over there, man. That guy's crazy. I said, well, that's what I hired you for. None of my guys would go. So I figured, let me go figure it out before this guy wrecks the joint. So I go over there. I said, I just want to let you know, this is my home you're in. He said, who are you? I said, I'm Johnny Russo. I'm the owner. Great. I said, well, you got to leave because those sirens you're hearing are coming for you. And I don't want no trouble. I don't know who you're with. I'd rather let the guy go and let me get this girl to the hospital. Thank God he missed her eye with the bottom of the bottle. So now I don't know he still has the bottle in his hand. So he won't step aside. And then he goes for me, and fortunately I'm agile enough, I go back and he slits my throat from ear to ear. But he didn't hit my throat because I was agile. He hit my chin line. But meanwhile, my chin is hanging. We've all gotten cut by shaving women and men. It bleeds like it's never gonna stop. So I had to get his, I was trained in so many ways. I had to change his attitude and get his, you know, get his direction. So I said, what you, look what you did to these shirts. These are Sea Island cotton shirts. I waited six months for this shirt. It's all over. I just needed time to get my gun. And I put, I always carry, and I put it right in his forehead. I said, now I'm giving you one more chance. Get out of here, you're going out in a black bag. This lady needs help. He says, F you. 
So I put two right between his forehead in front of 150 people. Because I knew this guy was going to take me down. I, got, I could feel my hands getting numb already just from my own blood. God knows what's going on with her. He looks at me and he, and he looks and he touches his forehead like he got bit by a mosquito. And I'm looking at this guy and say, wait a minute, I know I just shot him in the head. me, And I put the gun right in his chest and put the other three in his chest. And fortunately, he fell down. Only to find out he was Lorenzo Morales, an underboss to Pablo Escobar in the Medellin cartel. I, I couldn't have shot the worst guy in the world. This was How long did it take to find that out? Uh, the next morning, because uh, I'm very cooperative with the politicians and police departments. So when they finally got there, he was already dead. And I learned the lesson with paramedics and EMTs. They came in and they took care of the most traumatized first, him, not the girl, not me. So I said, Coots, the detective, I said, Coots, let's take it to, uh, you know, uh, Las Vegas Medical Center is right down the block. So we wrapped her in ice because I, you know, I don't want the girl to die. And this guy, I don't know if he was dead or alive. So him and I go out my back door. We're two blocks away from the hospital. And he said, what happened? I said, well, the guy got crazy, slipped me, stabbed her, slit my throat because I wanted to get her to the hospital. He said, that's how it came down, Johnny. Right? We don't need to worry about it. I said, no, I got nothing to worry about. In fact, I said, call on the radio because he had a driver. I said, call on the radio. Make sure you book everybody that's seen it. Let's get this and straighten it out now. Long story short, we get there. Lois Mattis, her name was. They stitched her up. They, uh, me being vain, they got a guy in the emergency room. I said, oh, wait, 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 wait. You, ain't cutting, you ain't doing anything. Let's pack this up. And I called my plastic surgeon that I knew in, in Beverly Hills to come in. <laughs> so Elias Ghanem, who was Elvis's doctor at the time in Vegas, he heard about it. Everybody knew. But, and they, he came over and he attended to me until the doctor, to, to uh, Murray Parks got there and stitched me up. I, I have no scar. <laughs> wow. That's how nuts I am. But then I got the bad news the next day of who he was. And he was a Marilito. I said, what's a Marilito? So Coots had a specialist in, in Colombian, all that voodoo bullshit. And um, he said, they're going to kill your friends, dogs, family, and let you suffer before they get you. And I'm saying, what the hell? So now I fly into New York because I happen to be a, a, a hot and cold friend of John Gotti. And John liked me and didn't like me. So I knew if anybody can get me in to see him, he says, you're going to go there? And it's all over the news. Steve, when I got to the Ravenite in Mulberry Street, he said, oh, the killer, the tough guy. I said, I'm not tough. I said, they're going to kill my kids and family. I said, I got to get to see him. I think he only arranged it because he wanted to get rid of me anyway. He thought once I got there, I'd never get back. But I had to end it because I didn't want nobody to get hurt over a situation. And when most of your people read the book, they'll understand. I had a lot of priors and I had, you know, experience in so many ways with death before. So I get there and they have me. I meet him in a church, which I felt very comfortable because I'm very religious. And there was only one guy at the altar when I got into the church. It was in the middle of the afternoon. So as I'm walking, the pews are creaking and people are sitting up with rifles. 
By the time I got to the front of the church, he had 50 of his men in there. And I said, Mr. Escobar, is you Johnny Russo? I said, yeah, that's all I remember. I got hit from the back. Next thing I wake up, I don't know how many hours later, I'm in a torture chamber, three stories below the prison he built for himself in Bogota. And the stench of the body bags and everything else, that's where they tortured and killed everybody. And I don't know how long I was there, but hours later, there's this clean dressed guy standing in front of me. I'm only seeing, you know, his crotch down because I'm shackled to this chair. And it was Pablo Escobar. And in his hand, he had the book, The Making of the Godfather. <laughs> and he said to me, why didn't you tell me you were Carlo? I love that movie. Clean him up and bring him up to the house. This has gone on in my life so many times when I met Saddam Hussein, I met, you name the people that I met, world leaders, they love this movie. <laughs> wow. So now I'm having dinner with Pablo Escobar in his house. I don't know how many hours later, they bathed me, they gave me some medicine, because I really couldn't walk. I mean, they were destroying my lower body. And he said, why did you come here? I said, Mr. Escobar, I did my homework. You have a daughter the same age as my daughter. If somebody was going to kill your daughter and you're responsible for it, what would you do? I had to come here. And he got up. I don't know if he was going to kill me and gave me a hug. He's you're a real man. He's I'll straighten this out for you. He's but before you go, could you do me a favor? I said, yeah, you want me to cut the grass? Do, what, do you, what, what do you want me to do? Clean your car? He said, no, 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 I want to do the closing scene of the Godfather. And I'm saying to myself, uh-oh, I read everything about this guy. He was a maniac. Well, you must know how insane he is. And everybody, even to today, said, how did you get away with this? This guy kills people. And then ask why they're there. So I said, why do you want to do this scene? He said, I love this scene. I said, what scene? He said, when you and Michael, when Michael comes to your house, confronts you. I said, okay. You want me to write it down? He said, no, I know it. Now I'm really saying, uh-oh, this is how they're going to take me out. So he gets up, he goes to the door with a couple of his men, and he walks in, and he says to me, you got to answer for Santino, Carlo. And he threw this whole scene. <laughs> and he gives me the airline ticket. I'm going to die but this is it. They walk me out to a car. He walks me out, opens the door. Instead of only Clemenza in the back, he has two other guys in the back and a guy driving. They're going to take me to the airport, supposedly. And I get in. As soon as they sit down, they say, hello, Carlo. And they all bust out laughing. He opens the door, gives me a hug and a kiss. He says, get out of here. I'll straighten it out. <laughs> That's an unbelievable story. That is absolutely classic. Now, what was, what was his aura like, Pablo Escobar? What was his presence like? His, you can't read him. Because he's, he's being so nice, and I know how he's a pit bull. And I'm saying, why, why, why? And then when he asked that, I figured that's why. He supposed to have some fun with me and uh, show his power to all his men, and then just kill me. But thank God he didn't. <laughs> yeah, because he watched The Godfather over and over again. And... Oh, you know that? Yeah, as a kid, um, as a younger person, he was accused of adopting the mannerisms of The Godfather. I know. Yeah, and it was one of his all-time favorite movies. Thank God it saved me. 
<laughs> Unbelievable. I didn't do Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> so you said when you went into the church then, he was burning his fingers or something. Fingertips. It was some kind. I never saw a saint like that. In the, in the right-hand corner of the church was the Blessed Mother, but it was on a globe of the world, and she had her hands down, and people out of the burning of hell were trying to reach her. And he, when I got there, started smelling flesh, and on a candle, he was rolling his fingers over it. And I'm saying to myself, had some kind of, a, maybe it was a mental thing with him, pain over power. He, st he studied a lot of things. But you know that. I mean, this well, guy... one, of the, one of the things they did was they would burn their fingertips to get rid of fingerprints. Right. Yeah, so that, that could be a possibility as well. Right. And you said when they tortured you, they were whacking you in the balls? Yeah, they had a thing like uh, the, the knights had. It was on a chain, but on the end of the chain was like a, 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 maybe like the size of a softball. And they just, there was no seat on the chair. So my rectum and my, my balls was like, when I, I mean, I didn't walk right for a long time. It was like crazy. And after going through polio, I, I knew how to, you know, adjust to all that because my right side of my body has always been stronger. My left side of my body was paralyzed for five years. So to me, it was like reliving all of this all over again. But thank God I got out of there. Did you recognize any of his more famous hitmen like Popeye, El Chapo? Mugre. I knew El Chapo, yeah. I met him that day, and then I got to know him and his son now. They had El Chapo at MCC, or you know that. Oh, El Chapo. I mean El Chapo, who was one of Pablo's uh, hitmen. But yeah, El Chapo. I, I, let's get, we'll, we'll get your El Chapo story in a minute. So on the, on the journey home then, the police stop you, don't they? I, actually, they put me on the plane. When I landed in Florida, the uh, suits got on the plane, like in the movies. And prior to landing, as we were rolling to the staircase on the tarmac, and I thought that was strange, they said, please stay seated. Some people have to come on board. So they come on, and they pick up the intercom. They says, Johnny Russo on his plane, which they knew I was. So I raised my hand. They came and put handcuffs on me, and they're telling me nothing. They're taking me off. They had a jet on the tarmac. It was the DEA. So they're flying me to Washington. Unbeknownst to me, I knew they were watching John Gotti on Mulberry Street. So they had me there. They had me with Noriega in the Dominican Republic. And then they had me at Pablo Escobar's house for two or three days. <laughs> and I was leaving. So they must have been, this must be the new drug lord of the new connection. <laughs> um, how naive they were. Because when I wanted to go to the bathroom, I said, can I go to the bathroom? They said, yeah, I said, can you take these handcuffs on me? So they looked at each other and said, oh, go ahead. And the guy walks me to the door and he's standing outside and I come out and he says to me, you were calling the Godfather, right? I said, yeah. I said, okay, so now what? So he walked me back and they said, what were you doing with these people? I said, and then the guy, the guy in command said, don't even talk until we get there, to the office. I said, do you have any idea why I went there? They said, we have a lot of ideas why you went there. I said, do you realize I killed one of his guys in Vegas? They didn't even know it, because that's a state thing. Then they get on a computer, and they figure out, and then, and then they realized what they thought. That's not why I was there. I never had a traffic ticket. 
<laughs> so then they take me into a, you know, fingerprint me and all of that. And then I, I wasted an hour with them. And they said, you can go. I'm in DC. I said, I'm in DC. Well, we don't provide transportation. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm saying that was the worst five days of my life. <laughs> So were there any repercussions for whacking the guy in your joint? No, he took care of it all. Well, open and shut, open and shut case with the law enforcement because okay, it was justifiable homicide. That was my third one, because you know in the hospital ward I killed a pedophile in self-defense. But um, uh, the last judge I was in front of is Mr. Russo. I don't care what you do. You kill one more person and you can't open your shirt and there's a big S on your chest and you have a cape, you're going to jail. <laughs> what is the story behind you killing the pedophile? Well, Dolores Barone, who was uh, Carlo, Escobar, Carlo, Escobar, Carlo Gambino's niece, was a candy striper when I got to the hospital. So he told her, take care of that kid from the neighborhood. So you should bring me the extra jello at night. And the most important thing, she gave me a hug at the end of the night, which I needed. I was isolated. I'm six and a half years of age at the time. And I was lonely, obviously. So as I matured, I was a good looking kid as a kid. And she said, watch out for Harold Gardner. I said, who's Harold Gardner? He says he's a physical therapist and they may assign him to you, but watch him. See, and the only privacy we had in the hospital was the curtains drawn off from around the ceiling. I was in a 20 bed ward, isolation ward, quarantine polio. And once you had some power, which I had, cause my right hand, my whole right side was good. They wouldn't give you a bedpan anymore. They encouraged you to get out of bed. You crawl out of the bed and then crawl to the bar, side rails and go to the bathrooms. Well, as time went on one night, I'm going to the bathroom and there's like a porter's broom that they use in the theaters or the little, little brooms. And for some reason, with my right arm, I put it under my left arm and just held it till I got to the stall because I couldn't stand in a urinal yet. And I broke the end of the broom off and I wasn't in no rush to go back. I'm, to my dad, I'm gonna, I've been there 24 hours a day. So as I was sitting there, I used to say the rosary and pray a lot. And I filed the top of the broom in the grout of the floor tile to make a weapon out of it. Don't ask me why, it was about three feet long and the radiator was hung on the wall. So I always went to stall four and I put the broom back there and nobody ever found it. Every time I went to the bathroom, even if somebody was in stall four, I'd lean against the sink and wait for them to go. This one night, she warned me about Harold coming and I see white shoes below the curtain at the stall. And he's trying to open, I'm holding it with my right hand. I said, I'll be right out. If you need, I'll be right out. No, 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 I want to see how you're doing. I said, I'm doing okay. And then when it, and he jerks the curtain open and he closes the curtain behind him, now he's standing right in my face. And he unbuttons his fly and he's trying to convince me, he was a black man, that his penis was a tootsie roll. And he didn't realize I had my broom on the floor at my right hand. So he's standing with me and he's trying to force himself in me, in my mouth. And I pick up the stick 
because he was, you know, doing, paying no attention to what I was doing. And my arm, my left arm, I used just as a guide. And I laid the stick on it, and I drove it right under his rib cage. God must have aimed it right. It went right out his back, because my, my upper body for four years, that's all I've been doing is dragging around. Well, he was running around the bathroom, spraying the whole white tiles, which is such a dramatic scene. Next, Dolores comes running in, throws a blanket over me, and they take me up to the psych ward. So I went to the seventh floor for 72 hours, and they said, you know, he can go. Because they didn't want nobody to know that that was so under the curtain, you know, how many people were being abused by this guy. They let me go. So I, they, they wanted to call for my mother and father and to, or somebody to pick me up. I said, Dolores, I don't want nobody to come. I said, you just take me down and put me in a cab. And she did. I said, I'll get you the money back. And I went back to the neighborhood, which was 30 blocks down the street. And I went to my grandfather's friend, McNaughty's Bakery, and I wound up staying there for a year and a half. But I was making the bread, which was good for me, with the 50-pound bags of abbas. It was like exercise and dynamic tension and kneading the dough. But was more beneficial was the wood-burning ovens. There was no humidity. So even at my age, I have no arthritis, no rheumatism. My whole left side of my body. I mean, the last kid that I kept in touch with, he just passed. Most of them never got their mobility back. And I have to say one thing, Sean. I have no physical problems. None. Wow. That's fantastic. No, it's amazing. How old were you then when that situation happened? 12. I was 12 years old. Did you have, like, nightmares or anything about it? You know, I had nightmares about the hospital. Not about that. I think... I, I always was wondering why when he went to these kids in my ward and they closed the drape, it was moaning and crying. Mm. I thought he was hurting them. He was, but not in therapy. Mm. So I, I always justify, even like Lorenzo Morales, this guy's selling drugs to kids. I have no remorse at all. I mean, to me, it's a... I, I'm, I, I said this to John, Pope John Paul when I got very close to him. And he said, how do you rectify all the injustice you've done? I said, Papa, I did no injustices. He said, how's that? He said, I'm a disciple of the Lord. He said, you're a disciple of the Lord. I said, I read the Bible like you do. There used to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm trying to avenge these pedophiles and people, drug dealers, and eliminate what they're doing, destroying people with a lesser mind than you and I have. And he gave me this, this, this piece in 1984. I don't know if you can see it on camera. And I embellished it, obviously. It was just too small for me. So I made Wow. And then he, then he became a saint. And my grandchildren say, Papa, you're the only guy that knows a saint. <laughs> He's saint Tom Paul. It's amazing. Yeah, so that guy definitely had a killing coming. Did you say there was one other situation where someone died or two others? Uh, no, Harold, him and one other. Can you give us the other one then, please? Yeah, I got into a situation with a bunch of guys and they shot me. And then as they thought I was dead, I shot the guy that shot me. What was the situation you got into? I, 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 I have to mention names. I don't okay, know. yeah, we don't want to do that. No, no. Bob Associated. <laughs> <laughs> and did you have to go to court for that one? No. Okay.
All right, I so in. I called it in. I was in right. I called it in. They came. They took me down. They brought me to the hospital. That when they realized the guy was that was shot, they thanked me. <laughs> and have you been shot? I was shot so far six times, stabbed, my throat slid, as we know, and thrown out a window. And I'm here. <laughs> what, what was the story about you getting thrown out the window? I have another problem. They thought they were, most people don't like me, especially mob guys. Because I'm really not a mob guy. I'm not connected to anybody. I was taken in by Frank Costello during the Kennedy uh, elections and all that. I was traveling the world, handing out envelopes to Carlos Basal and Scorpio Savella while they were trying to, you know, stimulate people backing John F. Kennedy, Senator John F. Kennedy, to become president. And nobody thought a Catholic president would have become Catholic president. Then I took my last trip with a suitcase to Dallas. Somebody picked me up and took me about 80 miles out to a ranch. And I got back in the car and flew home. And two days later, Lyndon Bain Johnson announced he's the running mate to John F. Kennedy because they needed Texas in the South. It was wild. Do you have a theory on who killed Kennedy? I'll tell you who killed him. It wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. It was Johnny Roselli, Chicago shooter. They had three shooters. New York wanted a shooter. New Orleans wanted a shooter because they weren't going to count on somebody. And Chicago had Johnny Roselli. Johnny Roselli, and, and I don't know if you know these names, and Santo Trapacante were brought in by the CIA. They were training them to kill Fidel Castro. Because most people don't know the deal the mob made with Joe Kennedy, if his son became president, they would invade Cuba and they would get their casinos back. The mistake John made was make his brother Bobby attorney general. He hated the mob. He hated all his father's friends, but they didn't know that. And the mob was getting really out of patience of when they're going to invade. So they were coming up with these theories to take him out. And then Batista would give them back all their properties. But that was already a year or two in. And that's when my last meeting with Marilyn Monroe, which was a close friend of mine for four years, I was at Cal Neva as the eyes and ears for Frank Costello with Sam Giancana. Sinatra was there. They brought Marilyn in. John, uh, John, uh, Robert showed up. John didn't. He was supposed to because they knew they were having it. And Joe, the old man, Kennedy, already had a stroke. Because they sent the message, we're going to start killing off your sons if you don't invade Cuba. Get your younger son straightened out. So what Sam Giancana's theory was, like they did with Jay Gahuva, they were going to blackmail him. They set up Jay Gahuva years ago as a cross-dresser, and they had all the film on it. So they all had a fancy for Marilyn Monroe. John promised Marilyn if he became president, he was going to leave Jackie. That's how naive she was and marry her. So Bobby was consoling her. I don't know if the world knows this. As Bobby was consoling her, he impregnated her and convinced her to get an abortion. So when Sinatra said, you got to do us one more favor, your room is set up with cameras, induce John uh, uh, Robert to come tonight. So we have him. Now, here's a Catholic boy. I think he had six or seven kids already, attorney general. They would have him. She went screaming. I will never see those guys again. They destroyed me because we didn't know that 
she was emotionally drained after getting an abortion. So I'm going to the press. I'm telling them, I'm, t- I'm going to disgrace these guys. They're, they're done. And we knew when she said that, she left. She called Joe DiMaggio, because I'm close to her. She called Joe DiMaggio, who was in San Francisco. And most people don't know, Cal Neva is on the borderline of California and Nevada. That's how it's got its name. So you can enter on the California side, and most people didn't know you were there. And they had all these cabins all around. She calls Joe. Joe calls Sinatra. He said, what's going on? She wants me to come and get her. He's mind your own business. Don't come. Because what the world didn't know, Sam Giancana gave Sinatra 30 days to get this straightened out or they're going to kill him too. Because he said he could control JFK. And obviously he didn't. Well, he controlled JFK, but not Bobby. Bobby was getting everybody locked up. But, um, but Johnny Rosselli was the guy in the sewer. Trained by the CIA as a marksman. That's why, until they did all, I mean, forget the Warren report, that was all, that was a Chicago guy. Eli Warren was their guy. When they did a scientific thing with all this magic they can do, you'd have to have a pilot on that bullet to hit all those people. But the kill shot went into his forehead and blew out his back of his head. That was on Jackie in the back of the car. And that came out of the storm sewer. The range of it and all. But then years later, when they found out Johnny Roselli after this stuff, they, they had an indictment for Johnny Roselli, and they found them chopped up in a barrel, a 50-gallon drum in, in Miami. I mean, Who put the guy up to take Oswald out? Oh, that was easy, because uh, he was running all the stuff in Texas for them, all their porno places, all their casinos. So Jack Ruby, they said, Jack, you'll be a hero. We're going to get you in the cell down, downstairs in the chambers when they transfer him, and you shoot him. And they said, you did it. <laughs> and then, you know, what most people don't know, including Dorothy Kilgallen, which is still an open case in New York, 72 people were assassinated after Kennedy. Anybody had anything to do with it. I was on the list. I was number 73. And Frank Costello got me out of there till this all calmed down. Because not that I had, I was a messenger. I mean, when I was on the ship, he put me on a ship that morning, November 22nd. And he gave me $15,000 cash. And he said, go to Layton's, buy a wardrobe, because you're going to have dinner for five nights with the captain at the captain's table. I didn't never been on a ship. I didn't know that was a big deal. So the first night I'm on sitting at the table, I'll tell you this, it's not in my book. Grace Kelly was there with the two kids going back. I met Grace Kelly when she was at the Barbizon on 63rd and Lexington, which was a monitored ladies' hotel, and the curfew was 9 o'clock at night. Well, at 9.15, Costello and, and Walter Winchell, these guys, would send me over with an envelope for the floor monitor, and they'd bring me a couple of girls. Always Grace Kelly, because she wanted to meet all these guys. They were, you know, expiring actresses. Audrey Hepburn. So when she became, you know, Princess Monica, I was always going with Sinatra for the Red Cross Ball and all that. And uh, it it was a a crazy time in my life. I couldn't believe it. So now I'm having dinner with her on the ship. And it was like a morgue. Because, you know, 
the president was shot. All kinds of tugboats were pulling up to the ship as we went under the Verrazano Bridge, and most of the businessmen were getting off. And they didn't even say he was dead yet. They said he was shot. Then at night, they announced it. And it was funny because the next morning, when we get the Telex newspaper on the ship, I see Lee Harvey Oswald's picture. Well, I saw Lee Harvey Oswald with Carlos Marcellus in New Orleans. That night, I went down there. And then I see Jack Ruby. I'm saying, Jack Ruby shot him? He was a bum, this guy. <laughs> he was a mob guy. They sent him to, to Texas to run all this stuff. But uh, they got him. They got them all. Do you think LBJ greenlit the operation? Oh, no, definitely. Because he was the backup with the, with the uh, Texas Rangers. He was the one who brought him to the target. See, the deal they made with him, they said, John will be in for eight years, like they did with Nixon. They had Nixon, they had Truman. The mob had them guys. They said, he'll be in for eight years, and then you'll be in for eight years. That's why he went along with it. But then they were not getting their way with it. They brought him in and said, you know, they want to do something with this. And he, he, you control Texas. And he made the whole situation happen. Do you think if Kennedy's dad hadn't had a stroke, things would have turned out differently? I don't know that because Bobby was the, th the rock in their shoe. Bobby wouldn't listen to any of them. He told them, I'm not listening to you guys. He didn't even like what John stood for. Being the president, you know, he wanted to be this righteous, you know, he's trying to build this whole legacy of the Kennedys. And he really was a righteous kid. I mean, and he was the only one, he was the last boy. He witnessed the abuse Rose got from Joe. Joe, when these boys were 16, having a birthday party in their house, he would have a hooker, or who, or whatever you want to call him, come to the house and make my boy a man at a 16th birthday. In their house. I mean, this guy was nuts. You know, he had a frontal lobotomy on his daughter, because she used to have these fits. I mean, this guy was nuts. Tough guy, tough guy. And how I got so close to him, because Costello and him were partners in bootlegging days. They amassed $30 million each in the 30s during Prohibition. I'm living in one of Costello's houses right now, where, where I am right now. I walked in here when I was 13 years old. One night, on a rainy night, he said, you're not going downtown tonight. I said, why? He said, go to 223. We never used the streets. We used the address on the street. And he threw me the keys, 223. You'd just be out of here by 9 o'clock in the morning because it was a washroom. They had 24 sports riders in there. It was a wire room. And as time went on, I got a piece of this. I got six units in there. My dining room said 16. Wow. <laughs> I have an eight-stool bar and nightclub, five bedrooms, a step-down living room, and I'm right, right off of Park Avenue. Wow. This leads to my next question, which is about someone who did live in New York in a nice house. So researching my books, I learned that there's a place where, you know, crime, organized crime and the government coexist with the CIA getting the mafia to perform dirty work for them. And a lot of theories going around about Epstein, who killed Epstein, no. why, um, what, what's your perspective? It's not a perspective, you know, my situation, number one, Anybody that knows MCC, where he was being held, there's no way you can do anything in there. 
there's cameras everywhere. One of my closest friends spent 22 months down there waiting for trial. And that floor he was on, they had their chopper up there. That's where they held him for the Brooklyn trials. And they burn through the bridge every morning in an armored truck. But there's no way that was very well politically organized. And the government had to shut it down. What he had up in this house, I think on 74th Street here, downstairs, would destroy the United States government. But see, what they don't realize, they're such idiots. The manifest out of, out of the Bahamas, the people that were on those planes, they're in the Bahamas. So all they're going to have is who came on the plane, but not what went on and what he organized. Epstein was Mr. Fixit. Yeah, Clinton did not go into the island, and then it came out, he was on the flight log almost 30 times. I know, which is funny. But what I was about to say is that what we say in, in uh, the life I live, he's a man without a shadow. You know. Then he's <laughs> So how did your relationship with Marilyn Monroe come about? That was strange, because I, I was like, 15 and a half years of age, and I get stopped by a truant officer on the street. And I was on my way to Toot Shaw's to see Costello, Toot Shaw, Jackie Gleason used to hang out there every night before he did a show here from CBS on Broadway. Joe DiMaggio, everybody hung out there. So I'm going there to drop off 5,000 at Costello, and this truant officer says, how come you're not in school? I laughed at him. I said, in school, I had about $10,000 in my pocket. I said, what are you talking about? He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 15 and a half. He said, you're 15 and a half. Well, New York state law, you have to be in school until you're 16. He gives me a ticket. So I take the ticket. I walk into Tuchos with the ticket in my hand. So Costello says to me, how'd you get a ticket? Were you walking too fast? I, I said, I don't know. He gives me the ticket. <laughs> I give him the ticket, and he reads it. And he said, this is a, this is a, a truance. How old are you? I said, I'm 15, 15 and a half. He said, how long have you been working for me? About three or four years. Because I, you know, I look very mature. I'm wearing suits. And I, 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 I learned a lot from these guys. I had a, a mannerism. So he said, I'll take care of it. So the next morning, I used to meet him every morning at 11 o'clock at the Waldorf Astoria, Peacock Alley. Because after the Appalachian fiasco with all that breakup and the mob, all the bosses were there, they only met in hotels now. And he basically sat there and met hotel guests. They didn't know who they were because they all checked on the John Doe and all this. Not, you know, before 9-11, you can come in as any, any name you want. So that morning I meet him. He said, I straightened out that ticket for you. I said, okay. And he gives me an envelope. He says, you know where uh, the diner is, uh, Lindy's, on, on Broadway on 52nd Street? I said, yeah. He's upstairs, is Wilfred Academy, a hairdressing school. I enrolled you in there. So I don't want to become a hairdresser. I like what I'm doing. He's just go, it's a no-show, just nine o'clock before you come see me, go and sign. So the next morning I go there, and the girl, sure enough, Mr. Costello took care of everything, and she thought I was going to go to school. She's just come in, sign in, you want to leave, you leave. And I look over her shoulder, there's like 20 or 30 young little girls. And near my age, I'm still in. So I used to go there for an hour, hour and a half before I saw him. One morning, a guy called, uh, what was his name? 
Mark Sinclair, don't ask me how I think of these names. <laughs> Mark Sinclair was a colorist for Clairol, and his partner, which I said years ago, but partner was uh, Kenneth, who was Senator John F. Kennedy's hairdresser, Jackie. And they all went to Lily Dashay. They were there looking for shampoo boys. Well, I was always ready to go to work, so I was all starched. They said, we'll take him and another guy. And the teacher let me know the hours that you work there count against your education. And plus, you can make tips. The fourth had a hair I washed. They told me to go up to Booth for They never tell you who the patron was. But, you know, her, the color, the rinse, how she liked the temperature. So I go in, and the maid already took off her clothes. She has a, a smock on, and she's positioned in the shampoo basin, and she's facing the ceiling. It was Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I'm saying something. You know, I'm 15 and a half. This is Marilyn Monroe. And I, when Costello was the home at night, I used to go to Broadway, because the theaters were open 24 hours a day. So I must have saw some like it hot 100 times. And I used to be in the balcony. And when she sang, I want to make love to you in that sheer dress, now I'm imagining this. So now she finally says to me, is there somebody in the room? I said, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. And I run the water and get it to the right temperature and have to put some drops on her wrist or her approval. Now I start massaging her head and she's moaning like we're having an affair. <sighs> and I'm getting aroused like any other 15-year-old kid. And now I'm saying, like I must have towel dried her hair for like five minutes. <laughs> I want my erection to go down. How am I going to walk her from here now to to Kenneth Station? <laughs> right, through the, right through the whole salon. <laughs> she must have liked my massage because she started requesting me. A month goes by. Costello tells me on a Friday morning, we have a guest up on our suite. She's going to be staying here. I'm not going to be around. I'm going fishing. I used to go fishing. Nobody knew this. It's... Uh, um, Tony Batts, Tony Accardo, they used to meet and go fishing. I can imagine these two monster guys on a boat fishing like they were normal guys. So he's don't go to the room until 12 o'clock. So I go up and knock on the door, and Marilyn opens the door with a robe on. She said, Johnny, what are you doing here? I said, Mr. C told me to look in on you. She said, come in, come in, what a nice surprise. So I come in, and she said, I just ordered room service. I didn't know what room service was. She had all these carts with food and champagne. She said, have something to eat. I said, no, I just want to know if you need it. I should go downstairs. No, stay with me. I don't want to stay here all weekend by myself. I said, no, I better go down. You're going to get me fired. She said, who's going to say anything? I said, uh-oh. have a glass of champagne. So I had a glass of champagne. She said, I'm going to run a bath. I said, okay, I'll be downstairs. They know me as the kid. My nickname was the kid. He gave me the name. Sinatra, everybody called me the kid. Never called me Gianni. So she walks with me. She walks, takes me by the hand into the bathroom. She rubs, turns the water on. She's combed out my hair. Well, I've done that a hundred times. So she sits down and she lowers her robe. And I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? I said, let me get out of here. Now, I'm combing her hair. Tub is full. She shuts off the water and drops her whole robe. She's getting in the tub with me. I'm a gentleman. 
That was Saturday afternoon. I left Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a friendship with her for what, four years, did you say? Four years until I was with her the last three days of her life up in Calneva. When she left Calneva, she died Tuesday. And she died because of the mix, getting in the mix with the Kennedys? Yeah. No, we yeah, because she said you're going to go to the press. So Bob, right. you know, the guy who killed him, actually, was the yeah. doctor who used to administer, and they administered through her pubic hairs, a dead shot. And then, you know, I mean, you could do an autopsy on her anytime you wanted. She had drugs in the system. You know? yeah. But uh, no, they gave her a hot shot, and that was it. Wow. Yeah. So, you, so I wrote the life story of a mafia associate who worked for the Bonanno crime family. Did you have any dealings with Joe Bonanno Sr.? I love Joe Bonanno Sr. You're not going to believe this. They just cast me to play Joe Bonanno Sr. I no way. To, I'm telling you. Wow. I, I was good friends with Bill, his son. I was yeah. on a couple of times. Bring they, were my, they were my neighbors up in the Catalina foothills in Tucson when I lived in, in Tucson up there. Wow. I didn't know you were such a, a, a acclaimed writer. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Yeah, I've got 13 books out right now. That's great. Yeah, so have you got any banano stories? I have so many banano stories, man. I, I was with, well, I don't know if, uh, in your, well, you wrote the book, so you knew his connection in Sicily. I wrote a book about a mafia associate who worked for the Bananos. Oh, oh. He, he came up under Charlie um, Batts Battaglia was the lieutenant. Oh, yeah. And then this, this guy branched out on his own, so I, I didn't know all the inner workings of the Bananos. Oh, no. Oh, thank God you stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got a notable banana story we could we could do not really that would only incriminate me okay you I, gotta keep a lid on that yeah i i knew him well i i didn't like what he stood for you know then obviously maybe you don't know he and and john papacci joe papacci were gonna assassinate colombo i mean uh gambino take over new york and the only reason Joe Colombo got a family, he left the Bofacci family and warned them. And then that's when they gave Joe an ultimatum, go back to Sicily or go to Arizona and be exiled. And then they, they killed a couple of other guys. But uh, no, I know, I've been around that. See, most people don't know. I used to see Carlo Gambino at just respect Forgetting, just having get the Jello and pudding for me, and have his niece give me a hug. So when I got out of the hospital, I'd leave the bakery in the morning. He always had coffee at Ferrara's, which is still there on Grand between Ma and and, uh, and uh, Mulberry Street, right on Grand Avenue. So I used to stay and just give my respects. Unbeknownst to me, my great uncle on my father's my from my father's side. Angelo Russo in 1949 was hung in Sicily when they were doing the crackdown on La Cosa Nostra. Well, in 1919, he sent Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, and Carlo Gambino to America. That's why they gave me so much respect. People say, why are you accepted everywhere? Not because of me. My uncle was a stand. You hung, hung him. He wouldn't open his mouth. And they hung him in the square so everybody could see it, which only made him more respected. So when I told Costello finally on the streets of New York, what's my name? I said, Johnny Russo. He said, who's Angela Russo to you? I said, Angela Russo, my great uncle. 
He said, oh, yeah, when's the last time you saw him? He said, I never saw him. Why would you ask me that question if you know him? He said, well, I want to know what you know. I said, what I know is that they hung him in 1949. He said, how is your great uncle? I said, my grandfather's brother. So he says to Blackie, who I thought was his friend, was his bodyguard, he said, take that uh, cigar box. I was selling ballpoint pens. I was a gimp. I said, you ain't taking my cigar box. He gave me three $100 bills in 1952. Wow. I'm saying, he said, you'll never do this again. He said, you know where the Waldorf is? I said, yeah. You'll be there under the clock in the lobby at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. I was there at 10 o'clock. And I, I stayed there until 73, until he died. I was with him around all that time. So that was under Mussolini, that story uh, that you just yeah. said that in the beginning. And yeah. was it Lucky Luciano turned the tables? Yeah. Yeah, well, Lucky Luciano made the deal. And they helped him. And, and did that then facilitate drug smuggling by the mafia that was protected by the CIA? Yeah. Well, you know, see, you know, you know more than I do, but as, as you know, the International Longshoremen's Union were guarding the waters. They found German ships off the coast of New York, but uh, three miles out, they couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. But uh, they used the Italians to infiltrate it, and they got, you know, their due of what they can do or can't do. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your relationship with El Chapo? It came on later on. I, I have a, I have a, uh, I had, they, they took it from me. <laughs> I had a house in Mexico that I had in Rosarita Beach, which got into the drug war, basically. And um, I had 40 cars down there, and a couple of his people stole some of my cars. So I have a connection to him through his lawyers. And he said, Johnny, uh, He's, I know you don't need any money, but if you need any money for your cars, I'm, you know, a guy's making five million a week. He says, I'll give you the money, he says, but don't come down here no more. And the fact that I took out Lorenzo Morales, one of the main traffickers, a lot of guys didn't like me. So I had all different fascisms that said, you know, you're a nice kid, but don't come around here no more. <laughs> So how did you get the part in The Godfather? How did you begin in acting? My ego, I always wanted to be an actor, but I heard about the trials and tribulations. So I'm in LA at this time, running a couple of things, and I read the newspaper in 1970 or 71 that Joe Colombo, who is now the Joe, Joe Colombo of the Colombo family, is picking in the FBI building and protesting the book, The Godfather. So I know their mindset. So I follow in this, and they blow up the gates of Paramount. Those gates are three stories high to send the message. So I fly to New York on a whim, and I'm in the lobby of the Gulf and Western building. Charlie Blue Dawn just bought Paramount. So I'm sitting in the lobby, and here comes Stanley Jaffe, Bobby Evans, all these guys. I took the red eye right from the airport. I flew there. I'm dressed to the nines, and I see Bobby Evans. Hey, Bobby. He says, "Yeah, I'm good. I said, "I'm a big fan of yours, but you have a problem with you know, Italian mob." He said, "No, we have no problem." I said, "Excuse me." 
I know you have a problem. I could straighten it out. He's wait down here. Now, I don't know if he went upstairs to call anybody, FBI, anybody. They, some secretary comes down. Um, Naomi figured that out. She was Stanley Jaffe's secretary, and he's the president. So now I go up, and he says to me, how are you going to straighten this out? I said, well, I have very close friends here. I said, they're protesting what's in the book, because I call Barry Schlotnick, who's a very close friend of a lawyer friend of mine in New York, I read that Barry Schlotnick is representing them. So I called Barry. I said, Barry, what's the big problem? You know, the, the way they're denouncing guineas and wops and they're making them look like animals, making them look like animals. He's Jewish. I said, if I can intervene here, you get me, you know, to see people have to see. He said, definitely. So I tell them, I can straighten this up. I said, why don't you, why don't you all familiar with the book, The Godfather? I said, why don't you let me arrange a sit down? I'll bring them here. Because I knew they weren't going to go nowhere. They said, you could do that? I said, yeah. I said, how about I bring Joe Colombo here and Barry Schlotnick, who's his attorney, and we'll sit down civilly and see if we can work this out. He said, you could do that? I said, give me permission. I'll set it up. Their office, my luck is right down the street of 59th Street on Madison Avenue. That's where the Italian Defamation League office was. So I walked down there and I said, Barry, I got a meeting set up. He said, well, Joe's in the other room. I go in and hug Joe. Hey, Joe. I, hug I said, uh, Joe, I said, you have a tremendous opportunity to make money here. That's all it's about with these guys. I said, they agree to change what you want changed in the script. Let Barry read it, give you all the notes, you make the changes. If they had to give those notes to you, you get them the union cooperation, the locations in the neighbor cooperation, and I'll get us. Notice I said us now. <laughs> I said I'll get us all the world premieres in every major city in America. He said, how are we going to make money? I said, you'll sell the ticket for $100 a head. That would be the hottest ticket in every area. So he looks at Barry. He says, Barry, you think that sounds right? He says, it sounds good to me. So they gave me the permission. They, I said, 10 o'clock tomorrow, Gulf and Western Road, 33rd floor. I said, do yourself a favor, though, because I knew some of this crew. Frankie Boy DeChico, Butterass, all those guys. I said, bring some of them with them, because that's, that's your image with them. And guess who he brought with him? Lenny Montana, who was collecting from, who eventually played Luke Obrazzi in the movie. And on the other side of the table is the most legitimate people in the world. They didn't know what was going on. So I, I, I had the whole meeting. I introduced everybody. I said, I'm only going to make it even more suspicious. I said, I'm only going to introduce Mr. Costello and Mr. Schlotnick. The rest of the people's names, you don't want to know. <laughs> like, hey. I said, here's what they're going to do. Barry's going to read it. If you okay it, we'll come back. So they read it. A couple days go by, we come back. So now we're sitting there. They're all going to shake hands and this, that, and the other. So I tapped Joe out. I always sat next to Joe. I said, Joe, what about me? So he says, yeah, what about my boy here? 
He said, oh, we're going to give him a part. He wants a part in the movie. We'll give him a part. I said, excuse me. All due respect, Bobby, talking to Bobby Evans. I said, I don't want a part. I play Michael, Sonny, or Carlo. So that's when we went on to say, your audience don't know this. Well, Michael's been cast. James Kahn is playing Michael. I said, well, who's playing Sonny? They said, Carmine Caridi, he's on Broadway right now. They thought he should be a big guy. Carmine Caridi is six something. He was in the man for La Mancha. I said, well, who's playing Carlo? He said, we didn't get to that part yet. So I said, Joe, Joe, I want to play Carlo. So he looks at them, he's playing Carlo. That's how I got the part. <laughs> <laughs> that is the hustle of a lifetime. It changed my life. Think about it. Here we are 48 years later since the release. And I'm still, my book, I got away with using Hollywood Godfather. I thought they'd tell me I can't use it. But I proved to them it's a religious term. I'm a godfather of 54 kids. You can't tell me I can't use it. And I guess, you know, the literary people said, he's right. Yeah, legally, you can't copyright titles even. So no. my dad has texted me some questions for you. What was working with Marlon Brando like? Oh, my God. At first, he wanted to get me fired. Because we had the rehearsal on 119th Street, Patsy's. And I've been up there a hundred times. I used to bring midnight loans up there because they had a big zig and egg game. And that was Vito Genovese's headquarters. And Fat Tony Salerno was running it in all of them. So when they, I saw the call sheet, I never had a call sheet saying, you know, we'll pick you up at 9.30. We're going to rehearse at this address, Patsy's. So I felt good. So I got in touch with the AD, who was the guy I had a contact. And they said, I, I don't need a car to pick me up. I have my own car. He said, no, no, you can't come with your own car. I said, let me just tell you something. I got a Bentley here, a 1965 Bentley with a Chinese chick chauffeur. And we're going to my friend's neighborhood. I ain't going up there in a Ford. And they, they didn't have to handle me. <laughs> and the footnote to the whole crew is don't correct this guy. Don't say anything to this guy. Only go to Francis with it. So I go there. I'm dressed in a brownie suit. I get there early to talk to Angelo, Jeff, the Cheesecake, everybody I knew, Tony Cupp, I, mean, I knew everybody, Danny Pagano. So they said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here for the rehearsal. Rehearsal a lot. And, and Patsy said they have the Paramount rented it for a couple of days. They're going to have the rehearsal for The Godfather. They said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm in a part. I got a big part. He said, you're not an actor. Get out of here. I said, I'm telling you, I'm playing Carlo. Carlo? That's get out of here. You can't be doing it. And that happened to me so many times when I told people I was playing Carlo. Now we're in rehearsal. So I'm sitting around the table. We're all there. And everybody was categorically addressed on the table with signs, you know, Johnny Russo, Carlo, Al Pacino, Michael. And everybody got up and you know, introduced themselves. And Francis Ford Coppola says, before we bring in Mr. Brando, we want you to understand do not have eye contact with him. Do not approach him. Yeah. Everybody understand? Yeah. So now we rehearse for a while and they get a break. I don't know how long you want these answers. I could get the days. As long as you want. Take your time. I'm the time. Yeah. So I'm sitting there and Brando comes over to me. Now I figure I ain't doing nothing wrong. And I don't know protocol on the set anyway. So he came over to me and says, 
you're a big TV actor. I said, no. He's got a big movie coming out. I said, no. He said, well, you're not on Broadway. I know everybody on Broadway. I said, you're right again. I said, what's this, the Quay Show? So he said, who'd you study with? I said, study what? What are you trying to say? And with this, he calls Francis Ford Coppola. He says, Francis, he's playing Carlo. He says, yeah, I know. And he wasn't too keen on that either, because, you know, he wanted thespians. But he couldn't get rid of me. So Marlon Brando breaks down the script. I never broke down a script. He said, he marries my daughter. He undermines my family for the Bazinis. He gets my son, Sonny, killed. My son gets involved with the business, Michael. I wanted him to be a senator. I, I didn't want him in this business. You got to think about this again. You got to get a real actor. Can't have some kid you're doing a favor for. Because I got nothing to do with it. So I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. I said, and I didn't know protocol. I said, Francis, go over there. I can't dismiss the director. And he left. When he left, the whole room was quiet. <laughs> Con, Sterling Hayden, even, even uh, and, uh, I mean, these guys, John Morley, these are all, you know, seasoned actors. Who is this guy? He just dismissed the director. <laughs> then the next sacrilege I did, I put my arm around Brando. I touched him. He said, don't look at him. I'm holding him now. I want to <laughs> walk him out of the room. I don't want to embarrass the guy. So I walk him out of the room because I knew there'd be no game in the back. I get him back there. I'm face to face with him. I said, let me just tell you something, Mr. Brando. You don't know me. I know who you are. And I'm not being disrespectful. But if you think you're going to fire me and embarrass me with my friends and in this neighborhood, listen to what I'm about to say. You get me fired, I'm going to suck on your heart. You will bleed out right in front of me. He stepped back. He said, that was brilliant. He thought I was acting. It's <laughs> 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 my first teacher. Because every time they were making him up three hours, four hours a day, he'd call me in there. And he'd go over the lines with me. Imagine this guy's teaching me. And he said, when, when he hands you the airline ticket, what are you going to do? I don't know. He said, look at it. You've got to be afraid. All the killers are in the room with you. But you've got to look at that ticket. Because the whole audience who read the book, they know you're going to die too. So your performance has to be believable. So look down at the ticket like a security blanket. Maybe they are really sending me to Vegas. They're not going to kill me. Maybe they think the, the end of the movie has been changed. You know you're dying. But think you're not. You got to make it believable. Is you got to call on this. Have you ever worked before? I said, no. He's going to be a master shot. Then there's going to be a three shot. Then there's going to be a two shot. Then there's going to be an over shoulder. You got to emote that feeling every time. So think of something. And obviously, I had a lot to think about. It's from Napoleon. So I could cry, you know, just thinking of that. And so, but that's why I say I'm the only person that could ever say the statement I'm about to make. I'm the only person at Marlon Brando as an acting teacher. Frank Sinatra is my only singing teacher. And Marilyn Monroe made me a man at 16. <laughs> <laughs> They're great accolades. <laughs> All right, next question that my dad said sends. Were you uncomfortable having to beat up Connie? Unbelievably uncomfortable. 
good, great questions, Dad. No, uh, my father used to abuse my mother. Oh. Read, and I used to hear the moaning and the crying. And I'm saying to myself, what the hell? And Francis came to me, her brother, because that's Francis Ford Coppola's sister. And the mother and father are on the set every day. So now they want me to beat up the sister and their daughter who's pregnant. And I got this thing in my head with my father. So I called Francis in and we got the technicians in, the stunt guys. I said, because they had her in a short sleeve dress. I said, put it, elbow pads, a cardigan sweater, pad her up. So that I not, and, and, and what I was, I was whipping her with a belt and I didn't feel because I'm, I, I made it be like a play. It's, you know, these are not real people. That's how I was able to do it. Then we, when I kicked the door into the bathroom that nobody got to see, which you will see now, because uh, our 50th anniversary, 2022, we're coming out with an unseen cut of Godfather 1, which for me this is big. Because there's so many more scenes with me. Because what, what you didn't realize, when she called her mother's house, if you recall, she was all black and blue on her face. You never saw me hit her in the face. When I kicked in the bathroom door, I simulated banging her head on the sink. And Census Bureau said, wait a minute, you can't show that. She's pregnant, whipped, now you're breaking her head on the sink. But, good question. Well, he's got two more. Here's the next one. Did you have a great rap party? No. At that time, and you read the book, your dad didn't, obviously. At that time, Joe Colombo, on June 28th, I was supposed to be on the dais, got shot, and seven other people got shot. And when they examined the crime films and the stills, the only person that wasn't on the dais was a big sign in my seat, Johnny Russo. So the FBI wanted to see me. The Colombo family wanted to see me. I disappeared. I wow. went to parties. I made my own parties. Any uh, inside stories from your time doing acting with The Godfather? Oh, so many. Brando, I mean, that, that in itself, to have this guy. And the day I did the scene with Michael, he wasn't on the call sheet. But he came on to help me. When he had to work, sometimes he didn't show up. Everybody was scrambling. He said, who called number one? We all had numbers. He was the number one. Who called number one? What's he doing in here? They were screaming on, the, on this. They said, nobody called him. So he heard. He said, I'm here to help the kid. <laughs> me, me. They said, they, the biggest thing on that set was like, who is this guy? So was it easy to adapt to acting for you? I've been an actor all my life. You know, Italians are very dramatic. You know, it's... Uh, I acted my way out of the hospital. I act my way out of more things. Even when I was selling ballpoint pens, I'm playing this poor sympathetic kid. My arm was starting to get better. I was pulling it up. <laughs> I've done a lot of performances, Academy Award performances, without being in front of a camera. So after the God, Godfather, I imagine people came up to you for your autograph. But did, did people come up to you like hating on you because of your role as Carlo? One lady in Chicago crossed the street yelling at me and as she's coming towards me a cop is coming towards me on my side of the sidewalk and she starts hitting me with a handbag 
And the cops said, miss, put your hands down. What's going on? Do you know who he is? He said, no. He's calling the godfather. So he said, wow, call him. What do you think? Like he almost changes persona. So he said, why are you so angry? She said, I had a miscarriage. My boyfriend beat me because he didn't want to marry me. And she thought I influenced him to have a miscarriage. Mm. Talk about life imitating art. Forget about it. Now, because you guys came in and someone read the script, do you think it made the movie more authentic? I, I really did because a lot of the profanity and all that was not necessary. The storylines and the loyalty. I mean, right now I get invited to prestigious law firms. They pay me a lot of money. And then I was wondering one time when I flew to Chicago and I went to their conference room, they have quotes, the Godfather on the walls. But I mean, and I always tell kids, you know, when you're 14, 15, go in your room and watch the movie and listen to the dialogue. Even my own sons. You know, I'm blessed. I have nine sons, two daughters, and 10 grandsons. Wow. I mean, I, when people say, oh, we want to invite your family over for dinner, I say, how big is your house? <laughs> <laughs> how did your life change after The Godfather? Oh, my God. It was... It was everything I wanted, and still it's going on. I don't know if you know my book now, Nick Volalongo, who won the Oscar last year for a green book. He won Best Picture and Best Screenplay. He just optioned it, and we're doing a 10-hour miniseries from it. And I have a podcast, Hollywood Godfather podcast, that's got 77 hours up that they're interested in that too. So if the ratings are great, this may be on like a series for a long time. Fantastic, congratulations. You mentioned your interaction with the Gambinos then. Did you have any dealings with Sammy the Bull Gravano? Because he ended up out in Arizona. I knew Sammy, I knew Sammy. See what happened to me, most people don't realize, my relationship was only with the top people. You know, top four or five guys, O'Neill, De La Croco, you know, a couple of other guys and never went these were, these were foot soldiers at the time. They were operating out of Howard Beach. I left New York, New York City when I was 21, after the Kennedy assassination. You read the book. I was, in, in, I was here in the, in the night, in the, in the shades. I never, that's why I was never, I never had, a, I mean, this may sound bizarre to any legitimate people, but for me, in my lifestyle and my friendships, I never had a handcuff on. I never went before jail, and nothing. I had my rights read to me in the hospital because of my throat was slit, and I shot somebody. Other than that, that was it. So Sammy the Volgravano, he's out of prison now. There's a lot of controversy. His, I read his book, his side of the story, you know, Gotti was using him as a fall guy. He had no choice. And well, I've heard, I've heard Gotti's side as well. What, what's your perspective? Well, I know all of that because they used to use Mary's apartment upstairs. That's why the FBI, they had two apartments across the street. And they had the place bugged. But then they'd have silence. And nobody would ever see, nobody would ever see him or, or anybody talking. Then they figured it out. Then they bugged Mary's apartment. And how they got to Sammy was playing the you know, the whole thing about John saying we got to whack Sammy. 
He's getting too powerful. And that's when he flipped. Sammy was very loyal. Sammy was, you know, the old school. He, he, he was a mortar. But, uh, what, what made him such a good underboss? Powerful. Powerful. And followed orders. John was nuts. John was very tough. Very tough guy. I knew John early on in life. He used to come down. And he said sometime, one thing to O'Neill. O'Neill was his, the guy he emanated. He wanted to be O'Neill. That's why he killed Paul Castellano and my very good friend Tommy Bellotti. Tommy Bellotti was the underboss to Paul when uh, Carlo appointed him. But he thought Paul was a businessman. He left O'Neill as the street boss. Well, John thought that was the biggest slap in the face. And he went without the commission's permission and killed both of them in front of Sparks. But I remember John coming around early on, and he couldn't understand how I, and we have, we're the same age, how come this guy sits in the club before noon? You have to be made to sit before noon. But these are like my family. And one time he said to O'Neill, he said, I don't understand that kid. O'Neill backhanded him. He said, who are you to understand anything? It's a privilege you have coming here. And your privilege starts at noon. And then you mention this kid to me again. I see the way you look at him. If he gets a splinter, I'm going to stick a telephone pole up your ass. Now, don't come around for 30 days. Then John's hatred built up even more for me. <laughs> wow. How deep was Sinatra in the lifestyle? Well, he was very deep because, well, he was a big earner. And he, he created a lot of problems. Frank used to get drunk. He was a bad drunk. You know, he weighs 128 pounds. He tried to slap me one time. I was 18 years old. I was in Sands Hotel. And I just grabbed his wrist. I said, Frank, you don't want to do that. And he looked at Jilly, who supposedly his bodyguard. I said, what's he going to do? I'll put a pole in his head right here. So <laughs> <laughs> not said, I guess I said the wrong thing. <laughs> So baptized my last son, Luciano. He's my son's godfather. I got really close with Frank. Did the Italian mafia ever try to reach out to London? There's like some stories about the Cray twins. Yeah, well, the Cray twins. But we had a guy there, George Raft. Before your time, man. No. Yeah, Raft, yeah. No. yeah. No, they stopped it. Believe me, Interpol and your guys stopped that right away. <laughs> I don't mind. So have I got all of your craziest stories out of you today? You don't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> you got some good ones, though. Have you got time to give us one more? I don't know. Which one could I give you? Um, I, I, I can give you one that's insane. Well, you read my book. The stuff I did with Yeah, you. but I, I got to ask for the people watching this that, who haven't read the book. Okay. I, I, I was dealing with Adnan Khashoggi. I don't know if you people know him. He's a big arms. Yeah, arms dealer. Yeah, yeah. Matt, Robert, Robert Maxwell, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and what? Uh, in fact, I'm still friends with his his basically financier, Bob Shaheen. And he's, I mean, he talked to him on the phone. That's how close I am to him. So we made a deal in Switzerland, which I won't tell you for who, to deliver a nuclear submarine. And I was moving a lot of money at the time. So I had to pick up money from three different places to bring it to Switzerland. They went to the bank. The bank said the money's in deposit. All they need was the final inspection. 
So they all go, I'm not going to go down there. They all take the, 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 the final tour and they come back and Khashoggi comes back and Bob says, Johnny, you got to bring the money back. I said, what happened? He said, he thought we were going to deliver nuclear warheads on it. They thought they were getting nuclear warheads. <laughs> he has the money. I mean, I've done some crazy, crazy things. Wow. Look, Johnny, you've been very generous with your time. Really appreciate it. I've been gripped from start to finish. I could talk to you all day. I urge people to go down below this video and, and click on the link and check your book out. It is absolutely riveting. And um, man, what are your plans for the future then now? You got your movie coming out? Got my movie coming out. I have, um, I, I've created a company that I'm associated with a while ago, four years ago. We own all the quarterly owned family products. So now I have Clemenza's meat sauce in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you have garotes? No, no, we got everything. But the interesting thing is uh, I'm creating an online store this month. So you can go online to quarterly Own Family Products and buy anything you want. We got 24 SKUs. I have Genco olive oil in the original can. <laughs> I have to do this with all my sons and daughters. You know, there's too many kids, too many people. Wow. But I'm just, I have a small faction of that. I don't want I don't want the IRS to think I own this company. I'm the, I'm the brand ambassador. <laughs> you, you, radiate, you radiate positive energy, man, and I salute you for it. And thank you again for coming on. But, but while we're in London, I just wrote, I made my book a one-man show. I did my first show for Mohegan Sun. They own eight casinos here. I did it at Falls View in Niagara Falls. 1,500 people, they gave me a two-minute two standing ovation. I take you chronologically through this book with film, Marilyn Monroe singing to me, shots of her in the bed. I mean, this stuff that has, nobody's seen these pictures. To one-man show, I want to come to London with it. <laughs> wow, when you do, we'd love to get you in the studio and do some more recordings as well. That'd be great. I'm ready, so if you have any oh. friends. Yeah, I got plenty of friends in London, yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Johnny. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.